Good morning, everybody. Don't you love Baptism Sunday? I think it's a, it's a great reminder, uh, uh, as, as uh, Anders shared, I was thinking of that this morning, how David asked God to restore to him the joy of his salvation. And um, I think very few things do that for me, like experiencing new life in Christ uh, among our community. And I think very few things have the galvanizing effect in a, in a group of people to become a community, like us sharing in that journey of faith and that public profession together. So thank you for celebrating with our brothers and sisters. Congratulations to those of you who uh, made the public profession of baptism this morning so humbled and so grateful to be a part of this community. As we continue in our series on our emotional health and understanding what's in our heart and how that is a righteous and necessary work, this morning we turn to uh, a difficult subject. And so I suppose it's apropos that as we prepare to do that, I share with you um, this morning, before we jump into the word, some news in the life of our family, our community, that is, uh, for me, and I hope for us, both exciting and tender. Uh, and tender is, a, is a, a complex emotion in the, uh, the sachet feelings, if you've been through that with a counselor or something. Um, the T in that acronym is tender, and it is, uh, it, it is I don't know, it's maybe self-describing. It's a gentle sense of, of pleasure in uh, loss or sacrifice. It's sensing the goodness in the hardness. Um, you all know Pastor Neil, and Neil and Katie have been a part of Denver United for, gosh, almost nine years. Yeah, as far back as really I can remember. I remember you guys coming here as 20-somethings, uh, feeling called to, to lead church and choosing to respond to Jesus and submit to him and plant yourself in this at the time, church plant, learn, grow, and be a part of the life of the church and over the course of time, how you've become part of not only the leadership of our church, but our lives, Mari and me, our families, uh, our, our community. Um, it's been God's calling on Neil and Katie as they've understood it and as we've, their colleagues and leaders come to, to affirm it uh, this whole time. And in the last couple of months, as they've, remember at the beginning of the year when we were doing awakening and praying, kind of zoomed out about, God, you know, what do you have for me this year and things like that and reordering our lives in Christ. In and around that time, the Lord was stirring in them that perhaps not only was that sense of long-term calling still valid, but that it was coming nigh. And in the last couple of months, the Lord's revealed uh, an amazing opportunity through a mentor, one of those yoke is easy and burden is light situations where um, you have to take the, the steps of faith and sacrifice that are huge, but the doors just sort of fly open and, and the road gets smooth in front of you. And through a process of interviewing and uh, meeting that church and then praying, prayerfully discerning, submitting to authority, walking with us, Mari, me, Daniel, and our team, uh, they have accepted the invitation to be lead pastor at a church in Kansas City. This will be the first time that our Denver United family and our little church plant uh, is sending out 
a lead pastor. And I think that is incredibly exciting. And I also think it's incredibly sad because among many other things, Neil and Katie have become dear friends like family to us. So I alternate between wanting to, to um, do everything I can to help set them up for success and wanting to organize a human blockade that lays down in front of their U-Haul. Um, but in the midst of that, I think this is part of how it's supposed to work, right? I would like for us all to stay together forever, but that doesn't happen. We've had lots of friends and family move and go to different places for reasons that they believe are God's leading. And uh, what do we do but celebrate and adjust and learn how to have friendship at a distance and grow together? I think of the church in Antioch when Paul and Barnabas were there. It was the first place that followers of Christ were called Christians. And really the complexion of church as a community emerged. And everything was so sweet and wonderful. I can imagine them wanting to preserve it forever. But the Holy Spirit said, set apart Paul and Barnabas for the work of my kingdom and building my church. And so they grieved and they prayed. There was some false prophecy thrown in there to try and convince them to stay. The whole Wild West in the church. And then, um, and then ultimately they celebrated them and sent them out. And that's what over the next uh, several weeks we're going to do with Neil and Katie. So Neil, Katie, would you guys stand so we can just recognize you? And I realize as you... We're excited for you. We'll talk about this more over the next several weeks. Neil's going to preach to kick off our series in June. That was already scheduled, and I think it's, for, it's fortunately timed because it'll give an opportunity for you to share a little bit more uh, as specifics become clear in the next few weeks about the church you're going to take the leadership of and what that's going to mean for your family and things like that. They'll be around um, into June, and then we'll take leadership of that church sometime in the midsummer time. They'll be moving and all that goes along with that. So, uh, many of you already know this. They've been sharing it with, with friends and family, with our leadership. And over the days and weeks ahead, I hope you'll take the opportunity to seek them out, send a text, find them. If you know them well, take them to lunch or a cup of coffee and just say, man, we're so for you. Cheer them on. Pray over them, bless them. I can tell you having done this, that leaving home and family and a church community that loves you and moving to a new place to take an assignment from God is an incredibly um, humbling and challenging and lonely assignment at first. And so the support and care of our church community are going to be so valuable. We love you guys. And man, we are so excited for you. All right, Father, in Jesus' name, I know we prayed over the word, but I just, I just want to honor this holy moment, pray blessing, wisdom, confirmation, direction, and the road to be straight and smooth in front of our friends. We bless them, Lord. And as we look to you to build us as individuals, to grow, heal, and change us, to build us as a community, as the counterculture that is your church in this post-Christian city that stands witness to Jesus in this generation. Father, would you equip us now through your word? We give it our focused attention, and this is our worship. In Jesus' name. Amen. As I've been reading and researching on this complex subject of the interdependence of emotional health and spiritual growth, I came across a deeply moving story 
of a man who is a university professor who on one tragic and unforgettable day lost three generations of his family in a horrible accident. A car accident took his mother and his wife and his young daughter and left him emotionally undone and left for dead. Gerald Sitzer picked himself up after a time of numbness and eventually had to face the daunting question, what do I do now? How do I go on? Where do I even go from here? His trauma exposed a culture fable that we're all taught from birth. As 21st century Westerners, life is depicted in its best case, normal life, as happy, peaceful, good. And loss of any sort is taught as a disruption that is to be minimized or circumvented, if at all possible. Our culture fable makes loss the exception to the norm and teaches us to dodge and weave and get around it. And when it's unavoidable, the fable jumps to rationalize or attribute or explain it away. Happily ever after, once we can get around it, or if there's no other option, as quickly and privately as possible, get through it. That's culture fable promise number one. Gerald Sitzer remembered a number of people likening his circumstances to Job in the Bible. Job, who we make the ultimate exception, the exception that proves the rule, right, of God's blessing and favor, so we want it to be. Job, in one horrific day, lost his family, his health, and his wealth. It's noteworthy that the great 18th century revivalist and philosopher, Jonathan Edwards, in a famous now historic exposition on the character in the book of Job in the Bible concluded, Job is the story of us all. Job is vastly less the exception and more the norm. If you think about it, though it might seem pessimistic or depressing, we're all losing our wealth. None of us can take it with us. Right now, we're losing it at a precipitous rate every time we fill up our cars with gas. We're all struggling to try to hold on to what we earn in inflation or a down market or a bad investment or circumstances changing under our feet like a pandemic that causes businesses to have to close after we've put everything we had into opening them. Life takes our wealth more often than not. Over the course of time, it takes our health. No matter how vigilantly we exercise and eat right and take supplements and do all the things that we know to do, our bodies become less healthy until they stop working altogether. And our families do the very same thing. 
We have a few golden years, some of us, when our kids are young and everyone wants to be together and then they grow up and they go out and they want to be with their friends more than us and we try to make home the place where they want to bring their friends and then they go to college and move on and best case scenario, have their own lives and disseminate into the world. We're all Job. We're all on a slow trajectory of loss. And what's more, most all of us at some point in our lives will have a moment or a day of catastrophic loss. Not something we wish to think about, but we do plan for it. Whether it be a diagnosis or a divorce or a downturn in the market or a tragic accident. Loss is more the norm than the exception, and yet we are vastly ill-equipped as citizens of the global haves side of the planet to make any sense of it. Perhaps a counterculture fable is more astute in recognizing the reality of our existence than is our culture fable. It is the work of literature and film and fiction to grapple with these themes, the loss that permeates and penetrates and disrupts our lives. One of the chief themes and motifs among those. And there are a few commentaries on 20th century social order more astute at that than The Princess Bride. Remember when Princess Buttercup says to her Wesley, you mock my pain. And his response, life is pain, Highness. Anyone who says differently is selling you something. Yes, Wesley might have had the right of it. The bereft university professor Jerry Sitzer much later, wrote a book, a wonderful book, entitled A Grace Disguised. And he observed this, I did not get over the loss of my loved ones. Rather, I absorbed the loss into my life, like soil receives decaying matter, until it became a part of who I am. The experience of loss does not have to be the defining moment in our lives. Instead, the defining moment can be our response to loss. It's not what happens to us that matters so much as what happens in us. He goes on to observe the quickest way for anyone to reach the sun in the light of day It's not to run west, chasing after the sun, but to head east, plunging into the darkness until we come to the sunrise. And so from this wonderful beauty from ashes passage comes our title this morning, Into the Darkness. Our series is In My Feelings, where we're exploring the reality, however uncommonly heard, in evangelical church circles and unpopular in 21st century culture, it might be that emotional health and spiritual maturity are inseparable. You can't be 
spiritually mature while remaining emotionally immature. It's just not possible. This series is predicated on and pursuant to our church's value that we engage whole life transformation. That's what we understand Jesus' call to discipleship to mean. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength, not that with which you're most familiar or comfortable. And Jesus said, behold, I came to make all things new. Last week, we looked at the reality, however counterintuitive, that we have to go back in order to go forward. And that leaves us possibly inspired, but overwhelmed, if you're like me, because that's such a massive swirl. Where do I even begin, if I wanted to, to go back into the loss, the hurt, the pain, the brokenness of my backstory and my family of origin. We're going to pick up the story where we left off. This is the story of Joseph part two, if you'd like. We're going to skip over some of the text, and I'll leave you to read Genesis 40 and 41 on your own. For the sake of time, I'll summarize. Basically, Joseph was at the low point in his life when we left off. He was serving in the home of a wealthy and influential Egyptian, having been trafficked by his brothers into slavery. But he found favor because he's talented and hardworking until, of course, he was framed for rape because he resisted the advances of that influential man's wife. And so he finds himself in the dungeon, falsely accused at the lowest of low points in his life. Well, over the course of the years which ensue, Joseph's continued faithfulness to God results in God's blessing and redemption. And he finds himself out of the dungeon in an audience with Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, and one of the most influential and powerful people in the world at that time, and ultimately second in command of Egypt. He gets promoted because of his capability and God's favor, and everything now is coming up aces for Joseph. So in chapter 42 is where we'll pick up the story. When Jacob heard that grain was available in Egypt, he says to his sons, why are you standing around looking at one another? Okay, there was a famine that all of Mesopotamia was subjected to, and in the land uh, that we know now as Israel, where Jacob, Joseph's father, and his brothers were living, they were deeply affected by the famine. And so they hear that there's grain in Egypt. Why is there grain in Egypt? Because of Joseph's savvy leadership in storing it up because God forewarned him. So he says, Jacob, to his sons, go there and buy enough grain to keep us alive. Otherwise, we'll die. Down in verse 5, Jacob's sons arrived in Egypt along with others to buy food for the famine in Canaan was in Canaan as well. Since Joseph was governor over all Egypt and in charge of selling grain to all the people, it was to him that his brothers came. When they arrived, they bowed down before him with their faces to the ground. Jacob, or rather Joseph, recognized his brothers instantly. They didn't recognize him, of course. He had been young, and they, the last thing they expected was that the brother whom they sold into slavery and left for dead would be the ruler of Egypt. And interestingly, even though Joseph immediately recognized his brothers, look what he did. He pretended to be a stranger, and he spoke harshly to them. Last week, we looked at how Joseph evidently faced down the generational iniquity of sexual brokenness 
that was handed down from his grandfather to his father to him because he didn't from nowhere summon the inner strength and moral compass to say no to his employer's wife at great personal cost. But it seems that there were other skeletons in his closet, other dragons from his past that he had yet to engage quite so fully. He perhaps hadn't done the same work with the trauma of rejection by his brothers and total and sudden exclusion from his family. And so here he encounters his brothers for the first time unexpectedly, and it seems that he had walled that off, just like too painful, I'm gonna forget the past and strive toward what is ahead and do other flimsy interpretations of scripture that really help my soul stay at ease. And then that wall comes crashing down when his brothers unexpectedly show up at his workplace. And he responds very much in keeping with the family script. Remember, it was the way of Abraham at times, of Isaac in his father's footsteps, and then categorically of his father Jacob to be deceptive, right? Jacob's name literally means deceiver, right? And so this misrepresentation, this lying and deception that his dad had done to get the blessing from his older brother Esau and overcome his father's favoritism of Esau, this is in Joseph. And it comes out of him, not only the iniquity of deception, but the iniquity of harshness within the family where there should be love. His brothers looked at a little brother who was favored by dad, hardly his fault, and hated Joseph for it, such that they chucked him in a pit, contemplated murdering him, and then ultimately decided it would be more profitable to traffic him instead. And that generational iniquity of strife and hostility within the family comes right back like it was yesterday that all that happened. And Joseph responds according to the family script. Ever happened to you? Before you even know what's happening, you're playing your part in the family drama. Joseph deceives and then is harsh with his brothers. Makes sense, right, why he would do that? There's lots of bottled up pain and that dragon had been kept behind the wall until the wall unexpectedly crashes in. It seems though from context clues that Joseph hadn't done much of the work in this regard. What we see in Joseph's life, Joseph's life, it's what we see in all of our lives. This is a galactic truth. It's a truth of humanity. It's a truth of people made in God's image, whether they regard God or atheists, have never discovered him or anything in between. And that is that when we push down the loss, we pass on the dysfunction. When we push down the loss, we pass on the dysfunction. That's just how it works. What was Joseph's loss? Well, they were many. He lost security and safety all at once. His whole life was wondering, what's gonna happen to me? Will I get out of this pit? Imagine the terror. Imagine the panic. And then he's lifted out of the pit. He's like, okay, practical joke is over. His brothers came to get him going home for dinner only to be sold to a slave trader. Can you imagine? Wait, what are you guys doing? When is the practical joke gonna be up? And then the slave traders have him in chains and drive away and he sees his brother going the other way. Can you imagine the terror of that loss of security 
and safety. And with it, the stability, the predictability that comes with home and family. He lost honor. He went from being a part of a family that was respected to being among thieves and slave traders and those whom they treated like cattle. The loss of identity and dignity and opportunity. Yes, his losses were many. And loss in our lives is like that. There are the obvious and deeply painful losses. The losses that happen catastrophically in an instant, like Jerry Sitzer losing three generations of his family in one fatal moment. And then there are the subtler losses. Some of us will have experienced gradually and slowly over the course of a childhood, the loss of a parent's presence, not even knowing what that would feel like to have had it, the loss of attunement, of somebody seeing you and valuing you and conferring on you that you are worthwhile. Some of us have experienced the loss of stability when the rug was jerked out from under us and all of a sudden because of financial trouble or because of our parents' whims, perhaps because of a divorce or something else, what was normal and stable now is just a series of daily question marks. What does that do to your soul? The loss of continuity that life will build on itself year after year and you'll have the opportunity to do well by it. The loss of somebody to model by grace what right looks like. The loss of innocence. Some of us had it taken from us and we came to realize there's no getting it back. Father Richard Rohr in his book, A Spring Within Us, observes if we do not transform our pain, we will most assuredly transmit it. Usually to those closest to us, our family, our neighbors, our coworkers, and invariably to the most vulnerable, our children. Scapegoating, exporting our unresolved hurt, is the most common storyline of human history. The Jesus story is about radically transforming history and individuals so that we don't just keep handing on the pain to the next generation. I wonder if Joseph did what we do, just boxed in, walled off the trauma and the loss. As a teenager, perhaps it was all he knew to cope, to get by. Maybe he bought the flimsy justifications that our culture fable feeds us. You know, others have it far worse. Or how about this one? Did anyone ever get told self-pity is from the devil? I grew up in 
three generations of army culture that never gets its fill of saying in the face of anything hard, suck it up and drive on. Maybe you came from a spiritual sort of family that would minimize grief, pain, and loss by saying, hey, this is all for God's glory. Maybe you were just told, get over it. The story continues in verse 8. Although Joseph recognized his brothers, they didn't recognize him, and he remembered the dreams, the dreams he had had many years before, the dreams about which he got chucked in the hole and left for dead. He told his brothers that he had dreamed they were all going to bow down to him. So he remembered those dreams, and he said to them, you're spies. Out of the dreams is fueled this illicit response, and his hostility and deception deepens. You're spies, he says, making them squirm. You've come to see how vulnerable our land has become. No, my Lord, they replied. Your servants have simply come to buy food. We're all brothers. We're all members of the same family. We're honest men, sir. He's like, nope, I know who you are. You're lying. You're spies. So Joseph put them all in prison, deepening, doubling down on the hostility and the deception, playing out his pain and passing it on, right? Look at the person Joseph is morphing into. Remembering the dream he had, a dream that it would seem came from God, he doubles down on the worst version of himself. And that's what happens when we deny trauma. It harms others, but it also harms us. When we deny the pain, the loss, the trauma of our backstories and wall it off and buy into the culture fable, it harms others, but it also harms us. Listen, if you hear nothing else, please hear this. Suppression does not make trauma go away. It forces trauma instead to the black market of your soul. And in that place, we deal with it illicitly, often subconsciously, and always harmfully. When we turn away from loss, most often we resort to distraction or self-medication. Distraction, entertainment, filling up our free moments so we don't have to be alone with our thoughts and remember or feel. Distraction of pursuits of success as if I will make it better by showing them. Earning more money, gaining more influence, being viewed by others as more successful. Or we self-medicate with addiction, and other self-destructive behaviors. And the result is that secondary emotions like anger and anxiety emerge. They leak out the cracks and they consume us. When we don't face the primary emotions, the secondary emotions still come. We very often don't know that we're angry. Others know that we're angry, sort of low-level Hulk constant anger. But what we know is that that fuels us. 
And we don't know very often that we're anxious. Certainly that the reason we're anxious is the unaddressed trauma and loss in our backstory. But those secondary emotions consume us and then leach out into others' lives. You know, um, fiction, literature, film grapples with this theme probably more than any other. Like Richard Rohr talked about, that displaced trauma response. Last week we talked about it in literature. This week I'm kind of on a a film theme, like The Princess Bride. I think no piece of modern fiction better depicts this reality than um, Anakin turning into Darth Vader, right? I mean, he's a little boy who at the beginning, for all that you want to say about the prequels, and I know I hate them too, and all the CGI and the whole underwater thing, it's super lame. But Anakin is a cute little boy. At least they got that right. And he's, he's dreaming the dreams of childhood, and he wants to do good, and he wants to be loved, and he wants to matter, and he wants to find his place in the universe. He grows into angsty, um, very bad-acting teenage Anakin who falls in love with an older woman and then gives way to anger when he can't control the circumstances that rack him with anxiety. Not dealing with the trauma of the loss of his mom and his village and everything, getting yanked out of his life. Anger leaks out and anxiety. And eventually when he loses his love, he gets consumed by those secondary emotions. The anxiety passes away, the anger takes over, and Darth Vader is born. That theme plays out in so many different works of fiction and literature and holds a mirror up to our culture and to ourselves. In addition to the self-consuming forces of secondary emotions like anxiety and anger, there's another way that walled-off pain and trauma harm us, ourselves, and that is that they slowly degrade us, that they detach us little by little from reality. And the film that captures this so poignantly, of course, is The Matrix, where you have, as Agent Smith said, billions of people living out their lives, oblivious, right? Plugged into something that anesthetizes them from the painful reality of the loss of their freedom and their world to the apocalyptic event that the movie imagines happened where the machines rose up and took over. And so people are plugged in, medicated, and kept happy and detached from meaning, actuality, reality in life. What a tragic picture that paints. Eugene Peterson wrote a book called Leap Over a Wall where he's talking about this insidious nature of grief. Pain, he observes, isn't the worst thing. Being hated isn't the worst thing. Being separated from the one you love isn't the worst thing. Death isn't the worst thing. The worst thing is failing to deal with reality and becoming disconnected from what is actual. 
disconnected from what is actual. Jesus preached a gospel of repentance for forgiveness. This is the seabed of repentance and salvation. It's actuality. It's sober judgment, looking at ourselves and just getting real and honest. Very often recognizing the trauma that happened to us is the necessary precursor to recognizing the harm that we've passed on. It's very difficult to repent of abusing until we acknowledge the trauma of abuse. Speaking among themselves, verse 21, Joseph heard his brothers say, because he spoke their language, of course, clearly we're being punished because of what we did to Joseph a long time ago. So they go back there. They don't know he's listening. We saw his anguish when he pleaded for his life, but we wouldn't listen. And that's why we're in this trouble. Now, he turned away from them and began to weep. He hears them say it. They name what happened. And boom, the wall comes crashing down. And he's flooded with the trauma and literally has to run out of the room because he has an involuntary, overwhelming emotion response. He runs out of the room, breaks down, and begins to weep. We have modeled in his story as an example for us, engaging the grief and the loss in our past. And the first is to turn toward the pain. He turned toward the pain. He ran out of the room, wept, and then it would seem began to engage the loss that had characterized and distorted his life. Jesus invites us to respond to that engagement, to respond to our own losses with the kindness to our soul that he showed to us. Very often, we Christians are kind to others and subconsciously very, very hard on ourselves. Have you ever found yourself being really harsh with yourself? Responding instead with kindness rather than with shame and self-contempt. And give yourself the permission to feel. Joseph later, when he saw his younger brother Benjamin, who was the one who loved him, hurried from the room because he was overcome with emotion from his brother. And he went into his private room, and this time he knew what was happening. He made space, and he allowed himself time, and he broke down and wept, turned toward the pain. Pete Scazzaro observed turning toward our pain is counterintuitive. But in fact, the heart of Christianity is that the way to life is through death. The pathway to resurrection is through crucifixion. In Genesis 50, when Joseph encounters his brothers again and they're talking through it, he says, you intended to harm me, but God intended it all for good. We often quote that verse from the story of Joseph as the summary point, and we place the emphasis on God intended it for good. And if we take it as that, that's the point, then we minimize the work through grief, loss, and trauma. God intended it for good, so just 
Deal with it. You're a pawn in his game. But look what he started with. You intended to harm me. He named, identified, and spoke that loss. That's what the majority of the book of Psalms and the entirety of Lamentations is about, naming our loss and bringing it before God. Lewis wrote, we must lay before him what is in us, not what ought to be in us. Mari's going to come up and join me just for a moment uh, as we wrap this up. Um, Many of you know Mari leads pastoral care in our congregation, and what you may or may not know is she spent 20 years of her life engaging this subject both in her own life and helping me and also with dozens, hundreds of our brothers and sisters in Christ walking through grief and loss. Genesis 45, Joseph kissed his brothers and wept over them, and then he began to talk freely with them. So later on down the story, he's able to process and experience that grief with them. Having turned toward it, named it, he's now not having to run out of the room And he's able to talk with them freely. And then ultimately, when his father arrives in chapter 46, he's able to embrace his father, initiate that healing grief. He wept and he held him for a long time. I love that Scripture gives us that little picture. And so the last thing he models for us is allowing the Holy Spirit to guide us through grief as a journey and not a staccato event allowing him to help us grow more regulated within ourselves and to identify relationships that need to be restored. Um, I wonder if you would just share a a moment of your experience and what you've learned, Mari, and kind of coach us on what this looks like. How How do we access this journey of grief with the Holy Spirit guiding us? Yeah. What a beautiful job you've done in sharing on this tender work. And, you know, it's, this is an interesting topic because it's, it's definitely not societally normal, right? Who, like, signs up to, like, oh, let's go back and why do we go look at, at the past? It's past. It's done. Shouldn't I just leave it behind? But <clears throat> research is showing more and more um, biologically. And there's a wonderful book called The Body Keeps the Score. It's very good if you want to read it. It's kind of a brainiac book, but it's accessible. And it's showing that research more and more is linking things like heart, heart attacks. Um, th- doctors are starting to, to do research on individuals who have um, how, what they've experienced emotionally. And re- there's a large percentage of people that just with heart attacks alone, that there's a, a lot, uh, I don't know the exact, um, how to describe it, but People that have heart attacks have a tendency. There's a background story that typically contains holding some kind of major pain or trauma and just trying to barrel Mm -hmm. through. There's like all this incredible research on it that our emotions and how we respond to those and whether we work through those or not affect our bodies. And Jesus wants us to live free in every way of our lives. And as, as ugly and hard and difficult as it feels like to go back and grieve our wounds, it brings freedom. And the, uh, the scripture that comes to mind for me when I think about this process is Jesus himself running to the, the tomb of Lazarus. It was his best friend. But we all know the story 
And most likely Jesus knew he was going to the tomb to raise him from the dead. He was Jesus. How did he not know that he was going when he heard the word that Lazarus was dead, that he was gonna go raise him? And if it were me, I would go in that situation to all the people that are grieving, I would show up and be like, oh, oh it's okay, it's okay. Just, you know, little like, you know, face is like, oh, don't, you just don't know it's coming yet, right? But what did Jesus do? He chose to go to the grave as a human, and it says he wept. It's the shortest verse in the Bible. Jesus himself wept. Jesus, the Son of God, who was about to raise this man, his best friend, from the dead. It says he wept. Didn't say he, like, cried a little tear, got glassy in the eyes. It says he wept. And we were given these tear ducts. They're in us. God gave them to us as a gift to release pain. And so I would say, like, in my life, I wish we had so much time to talk about it. It's been the greatest place that God has met me. And I share this with everyone that I meet with. It feels like, what happened? I can't do that. If I even begin to crack that door open, monkeys are going to come out. A monster is going to come out. I might not recover. And it's true, you might not for a little bit. But I will tell you that in my experience of walking with Jesus, I've had some amazing encounters with God. I saw miracles and miraculous, crazy things as a kid. I've seen God since I was a young age, at a young age. But I have not experienced the presence and the true comfort and love of God for myself. It doesn't even come close to when I have engaged God with my grief. When I've made space enough to name the things that, passed, that Rob was just talking about. Naming those wounds and then sitting with the Lord and allowing him to come and comfort me. The Bible says that the Holy Spirit is our comforter. But we can't experience the comfort. It's like there's only a few things that are named of him, the Holy Spirit, and one is a comforter. But we can't experience the comfort of his presence if we're not willing to come in our pain. When I think of comforting my child, my children that I've raised and still raising, the times when I've been able to embrace them and experience that connection with them the most has been when they have been in deep heartache and I've been able to comfort them. And Jesus wants to invite us to that place. He wants us to come and allow him to comfort us. I also believe that this is the place in our naming our, our pain, that this is the greatest place that we can experience healing so that we don't repeat the generational sin, so that we don't repeat the things that cause bondage. You can say alcoholism, it just runs in my family, just the way it is. Bitterness, unforgiveness, families torn apart, siblings not connected to each other. Yeah, it's just the way my family is. Infidelity, affairs, sexual brokenness. Yeah, it's just my family. I just, what do I do? No. We know the spirit of him who has come to set us free is that we are called to be free indeed. But we have to engage 
the pain that he might come and heal us. The Bible says, confess your sins one to another and you will be healed. I believe 100% that that doesn't just mean the sin that you've committed on others, but that means confessing the sin that you have experienced from others. That's naming. Confess your sin one to another and you will be healed. And that's what I'll leave with you as we close this morning, a practical, practical ways. How do you do this? How do you even begin? Number one, start journaling. If you weren't a journaler before, you don't like journaling, maybe find, maybe you just talk, start talking to someone. But there's something about writing down your core, and I, I just have people take a sheet of paper, draw the, some circles on a piece of paper, and write down in those circles some of the core events that impacted you. Not just the joys, you can do that too, but the, the ones that really affected you, that you can go back like that. Maybe it was a car accident. Maybe it was the day that your parents got divorced. Maybe it was when your husband left you or committed adultery on you. Like, I'm talking core events that broke your heart and devastated you. Write the core events and then draw some lines coming out like a sun and write some of the core emotions that come when you think about those things. Take time to do this. It takes time over, for me, it took days, weeks, months to do this. But once you have that on paper, find the courage to, to then begin to sit with the Lord and look at those things, experience them again, and recognize in that moment that you are not alone, that the Holy Spirit, the Comforter himself, wants to come and comfort you in those places of pain. Um, also share this with a trusted friend. It says, Com confess your sin one to another or the sin of others one to another. Share that with a trusted friend, a pastor, or a professional. I highly believe in counseling, good Christian counseling. Yes, we have some, we have some believers in the room. It's helpful. Like how do we understand our own story when we were living it? Sometimes you need to share it and let someone reflect back and go, wait, 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 stop right there. What did you just say? Wait, you seem really like that's just normal. That was devastating what you just said. And to reflect back to you, oh yeah, that really affected me. All right, can so, I comment on that real yeah. quick? And it, it's time for us to go. There is, um, I think in the evangelical Christian church ethos, a sense of a diminishment toward therapeutic counseling because we would, we, we've been told and would tell ourselves and others, uh, we have, that's, God's work of healing, and we have the Holy Spirit, and um, that secular replacement of God's work. Funny though, none of us says that when we get cancer. We have no trouble merging those and allowing that God, uh, I mean, unless you're in some wacky cult, you go to the doctor, because we think that God works his healing through trained professionals. And in the same way, very often God facilitates healing in our hearts through trained professionals. So I think it would be good for us if you still hold some of that religious stigma tension to release that. Um, the last thing I'd recommend is just find some good resources. Um, if you email me, um, I can connect you or I'd be happy that we do have um, care that we can offer as a church just to help you like, where do I even start? I loved that message, but I'm totally freaked out. I have no idea how to begin to how to do that. Reach out. 
um, would love to sit with you and help you with that or connect you with others. Um, there's some amazing um, books that can help you. Um, there's a wonderful pastor and theologian and, and psychologist. His name is Dr. Dan Allender. Read everything the man has written, and you'll be, you will have a pathway of how to do that. Um, he has a wonderful book called To Be Told, and it helps you to even just learn how to tell your story. Like, what, what kind of was my story? What have I experienced? I don't even, it's just a blur. I've blocked a lot of it out. I it helps, he has some great resources um, to help you do that. Another one called Cry of the Soul. Amazing, amazing stuff. Um, but most of all, start with the Lord. Don't just go to like someone else, go to the Lord. Let him be with you in those places um, and to begin to start that healing process in your life. 100% it is worth it. I think Rob and I could say in our own marriage, in our own personal stories, it has been the most transformative thing that we've experienced in our lives is to go back Amen. in order to go forward. So, And, and yeah. the, the risk can be, what if I don't go forward? What if I get stuck there? Well, that would be a real possibility if it weren't for God. But Jesus doesn't leave us stuck back there. He invites us to lose our lives in order to find them. And so if that's the case, then ask myself, do I really believe in Jesus? But we believe in one who heals, saves, and redeems to the utmost. Amen? All right, would you stand with us? Thanks for giving us a couple extra minutes on this incredibly important and sobering subject and also to celebrate baptism together. Um, let me just speak this blessing over you and then Mari, why don't you pray? The Word of God says, the Spirit, this is of Jesus, hundreds of years before he was born. The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is upon me for he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, to set the prisoners free, to declare the year of the favor of the Lord and the day of the vengeance of our God, to give beauty for ashes, the oil of gladness for mourning, a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. That exchange of life what Jesus came, said he came to do. We just speak a blessing over you. Will you just close us in prayer? God, I, I thank you, Holy Spirit, for every adjective about you, that they're personal. Our comforter, our teacher, our helper. God, I thank you that you're not so concerned about us being successful in this life as much as you are about us being whole. And so, God, I pray your wholeness, the wholeness of God himself, permission, God, to grieve, permission to engage our story, to see that that is holy work, God, that is we're called to live out the glory of God, to reflect you. God, let us have courage to see that the most broken places of our lives are only opportunities for us to experience the glory of God the transforming power of your withness to care for us, to mend us, to be with us. God, give us courage to let you do this for us. What a beautiful thing you offer us, Lord. So I pray your blessing, your courage, and your life over all of our friends this morning. Be with them as they go on this journey, God, in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Love you all so much. Thanks for coming to worship and celebrate baptism together this morning. Enjoy the beautiful day. Have a great week, and we'll see you next Sunday.